everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. It is Jen Hatmaker here. I am your delighted host of the For the Love podcast, and I'm super glad you're here today. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening and being an awesome, loyal podcast person. Right now, we are in a series called For the Love of Faith Icons, and we have been talking to leaders in faith spaces who have had their hand at this a long time. They've got decades under their belt. They have been in service for longer than a minute and just have a lot to teach us and to show us that there's a lot of interesting challenge inside these conversations. And today, whoo, like just whoa, okay? We are just diving right into the thick of things um, because we are talking about how on earth you and me, just like regular human people, wade through the murky waters of politics this year. We are going there. Like we go straight there. And I'm telling you that I don't know if we could have a better guide than the one we have on the show today. Um, you're going to be really glad that you're listening to this. I'll tell you that right now. Eugene Cho is my guest today. If you do not know Eugene, first of all, get excited. Today's your lucky day to be introduced to him and his work. He's a pastor. He's a speaker. He's an author. He's an incredible humanitarian. Um, in fact, we talk about it at the end of the interview, but as the founder of a nonprofit called One Day's Wages, Eugene is absolutely committed to philanthropy and generosity. He cares so deeply for the poor. He is the founding and former senior pastor of Quest Church, which is a thriving, like urban, multicultural, multi-generational church in Seattle. He founded it. And then after 18 years of leading Quest, he and his wife stepped aside in 2018. And he spends his days now traveling really all around the world to teach and lead churches and nonprofits and pastors and missionaries and justice workers. So sometimes that's done from a pulpit. Sometimes it's done from underground churches and villages, refugee camps. I'm telling you, he puts his money where his mouth is. Um, I've been following Eugene for years. I'm very drawn to his humility. And I am very drawn to his very consistent message. Like he's real deal stuff. His first book is called Overrated. Are we more in love with the idea of changing the world than changing the world, which came out in 2014. Isn't that a great title? And then his next book, which is coming out in March is Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. And that, my friends, is the substance of our conversation today. And we talk about it all. Uh, at one point, I just asked him directly, what is the Christian voter supposed to do in 2020? So I'm just telling you, we just sort of, we didn't skirt around anything. We talked about identity politics and um, how how do we prioritize justice and where does civility play in? You know, when do, the, do those two things ever cancel each other out? I mean, we're, I asked him some really hard things. And I think he answered with incredible wisdom and discernment. Um, you're going to really be, I think, inspired and encouraged by today's conversation. And I'm telling you that his book's a definite pre-order. And so I'm I'm really pleased to bring this to you today. Really moved by this conversation. I know you will be too. So um, please enjoy my conversation with the brilliant, with the insightful Eugene Cho. I am so, so glad to have you on today, Eugene. Thank you for saying yes. Thank you. I know we were just chatting um, before we started recording, and I think it's probably been three or four years since we've seen each other um, in person. And so we really need to fix that ASAP. Uh, let's do sushi in Seattle sometime. I, the answer is yes. Okay. Um, so you've extended to me the perfect invitation invitation just now. Well done. So I would love to just jump right in and talk about this amazing book that you've written, 
with the greatest title I've ever heard. I've never been so jealous. Um, <laughs> of course, Thou Shall Not Be a Jerk is your book. Uh, frankly, not a moment too soon for this one. So well done on the timing. I I don't I I think I speak for us collectively that most of us are kind of like clenching our teeth and bracing for the year ahead, just bracing for 2020. Um, so I personally am looking for any thoughtful guidance on how to navigate what is ahead for us as a country and a culture. So I wonder, just let's just start at the beginning here. Yeah. Can you tell us just sort of the overarching idea about this book and, and why you titled it something so like interesting and provocative? Yeah, well, again, thanks so much for having me. And uh, as you noted, this topic is uh, its not something that's just coming up with the upcoming election. I think it's been a huge, pervasive conversation for the past decade. And uh, whether it's good or bad, the reality is for the next few decades, I think this thing about politics is going to be a huge conversation. Uh, I wrote this book because as a follower of Jesus, as a pastor, uh, like you, I, I realized that this is all over. Our culture is inundated. We're almost obsessed by this thing called politics. And so rather than the winds of culture informing us, I really wanted to wrestle as one imperfect uh, Jesus follower to say, what does it mean uh, that our faith informs this thing called politics? Mm. And so in the book, I talk about 10 practical things. I think initially it was uh, titled 10, 10 Commandments for How Christians Engage Politics. And uh, a few folks that read it, uh, they really um, uh, were, uh, I guess, enticed by that chapter two, which is thou shalt not be a jerk. Yes. <laughs> It's so clever. And it kind of just gets right to the heart of the matter. It's interesting. I I really, I applaud and commend you for wading into these murky waters because just uh, sort of in general, you know, you are not necessarily known as like a quote political guy. That's not been your lane. As you mentioned, you've been a pastor and an advocate for years. And so it's interesting and important that you threw your weight behind this. Did you receive some criticism for even attempting to walk into political space as a faith leader? I, the reason I preface that is because um, I, I often do this as well, um, mm. because policy matters to people. That's really That's right. the bottom line. But um, people, uh, pretty predictably, some critics will always tell me to stay in my lane, um, that the yep. politics are not mine to discuss. So I'm curious if you encounter that. Of course, your book's not out yet, but even just in the process. Sure. Well, I might not be a polit political guy, but I did run for middle school president. Um, <laughs> well uh, done. Did you win? Yeah. Oh, no, it was a... bad. Oh, yeah. No. I think oh, I did dear. maybe 6%, 7%. Mm, so that's hard. That's okay. That's that's okay. Sorry. Sorry for your loss. You know, it's really interesting when people do give pushback about stay in your lane, uh, particularly with politics, because when you say things that they agree with, they applaud it. Yeah, that's right. When you say things that you they disagree with, the response is, "Hey, stay in your lane." That's right. And uh, I think there's something for us to note. You know, uh, we're not going to get positive affirmation for everything that we do, hmm. but I do think it's really important for not just Christians or pastors, but I'm thinking about LeBron James, the basketball player mm -hmm. who was wading into some political conversations, and I was so stunned by certain political pundits that basically said, dribble the ball and that's right. stay in your lane. I remember that. And I think that's a dangerous, dangerous thought. And mm. we need more people. Because I think to be a good neighbor means that there are going to be times that we'll have to wade into policy conversations and issues, as you know. Uh, but as for this book, you know, personally, I really wrestled with it. I quit writing this book four times in the process. Hmm. And it wasn't because I was having a hard time writing. I think I was really afraid. I was in my own head. I was uh, just imagining the criticism, the pushback that I was going to get. You're too liberal. You're too conservative. Uh, things of that nature. Just focus on Jesus uh, is sometimes the conversation that I get. Um, so I still wrestle with it. Uh, I have shared the book with a handful of folks and I've gotten really positive encouragement and affirmation. But having said that, 
you know, I know that growing up, there were a couple things that I was told not to talk about. Don't talk about religion and don't talk about politics. And it just happens to be that in this book, I'm trying to, uh, as prayerfully and thoughtfully as I can, to talk about those two things. That's great. Um, I it's it's complicated. Politics is complicated and it's nuanced. Um, and so, I. I, anything that you can give us as like this overarching rules of the road ethos, I think is a great place to start a conversation about how to engage, uh, not just with politics, but with other people around the conversation, uh, which is why, as you just mentioned a minute ago, uh, I love the Ten Commandments for basically Christians in the public sphere. I mean, these are very sort of high-minded rules of engagement, essentially, that you have set out for us. Um, and so can you talk a little bit more about those, how you came up with them? And then specifically, this is just personally, because I'd like to hear you speak more on it. I'd, I'd like to hear your take on um, number seven, which is thou shalt not lie, get played or manipulate. I think that one's really interesting and really important. But anyway, if you can high level it and then maybe funnel sure. into one or two for us, I'd love to hear you talk more. Well, I think you, you nailed it in the question that politics is really nuanced and complex. And it's the, that's the reality because people are really complex and nuanced. You know, sometimes I tell people as a pastor, the best thing about church is people. And the most challenging thing about church is people. And Amen. sometimes it's the same people. And, <laughs> that's uh, right, right, you know, right. Uh, but so politics is really complex. And I think anytime we say otherwise, we oversimplify it. I think we're doing yes. that topic and ourselves and the whole process of governance this service. Now, uh, having said that, I think my concern about faith and politics is I'm concerned that politics is what shapes our theology as opposed mm. to our theology shaping our politics. Yes, agreed. Uh, and I think that's just so important for us to just acknowledge that that could be a possibility in our own lives. And that's what's happening in our, in our current climate. Whether you affiliate with the left or right is that politics have become the largest, most significant banner. So I approach this book, again, from the perspective is as a follower of Jesus, acknowledging that even within the capital C church, people have different views. I think it's really important that we take Jesus's two great commandments as the, the, the bookends that shape high view to love God and to love people. Right. Uh, I think that's our bookends, and on a regular basis, that we should be mindful of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, mm -hmm. that we should have a particular bent towards those who are vulnerable and marginalized in our yes. society and community. Now, having said that, I think there's also just common decency. Yes. Uh, that's A, spelled out in scriptures, but I think just common decency about what it means to be a human being. Uh, to be able to listen, to be able to build bridges, to not be able to have stereotypes of other people. And I love sh talking about those things because that can be spoken to everybody. It's not an agenda on the left or right. I think we've lost the art of what it means to be human, to be decent, uh, to be able to not just engage in civility, but to engage in the practice of neighborliness, of empathy, and, and the list goes on. But you know, as you noted, uh, number chapter number seven, I think, is a bit more specific about don't lie, don't get played, and don't be manipulated or manipulate others. Yes. And there's been tons of research and statistics that are out there that you know every single human being now has uh, kind of the platform to become sort of a journalist mm. uh, through our social media, through the news that we're sharing with other people. Um, and I think it's really important for us when we're unknowingly and even worse, knowingly mm. lying about certain things because they fit and corroborate certain agenda that we have. That's right. And so when we only hang out with people that affirm our views, that uh, simply uh, pat ourselves in the back, uh, I think it's a possibility that we're part of a mechanism that are being deceitful or uh, not entirely truthful. 
Uh, and as a result, we're manipulating or manipulating or being manipulated by others. Now, the other thing that I'll say about this is I'm not trying to, I'm going to be careful about the stereotype about media. Um, but something has shifted historically when you study journalism 101. Uh, you know, experts will tell you that journalism's taken a major shift several decades ago where they were simply reporting the news. But now, not only are they reporting news, but they're giving commentary That's right. on the news as well. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but we should be very, very clear what's happening, that there are news that's being shared that has its own biases and its own uh, lens, if you will. So that's what I mean by we shouldn't get played because I do believe that while I don't want to vilify all politicians or all media, that there is that conversation of reality. Hmm. We, I've done several episodes on this podcast about this exact thing, this uh, idea of what does media literacy look like in our context right now, and how do we develop it, and how do we steward it. And it's vitally important. And it's interesting as I hear you talk, because if we uh, it seems like as a as a christian if we follow our if if theology informs our politics if those are if that's sort of our north star then you can't imagine a person who could just carte blanche follow either party you're going to end up at odds with something inside either space. And so I, it's a real like eye opener for me when I feel this internal instinct to, Mm. um, bundle it all and put a yes stamp on it. You know, I, I feel that instinct to do it because it lends credibility to some of the policies inside the way that Eileen that matters so much to me. And so then I'm tempted to just sort of sweep the other stuff into the bucket and say, well, I guess this is fine too. I guess this is just the way we're going to have to go. It's tempting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think some would call that identity politics Uh, from a theological perspective. Maybe we call it intersectional theology. Uh, It's very complex, Uh, but I think you nailed it, Jen, that uh, to think that a party monopolizes the kingdom of God or the ethics of Jesus is blasphemous. Yes, And we have to remind ourselves of that so that it extends kind of perspective and grace as we engage with others. Yes. Um, you know, if I'm honest, um, yeah, I, I, I think I, I think I'm right. Right. You know, I right. think I'm right. Right. But I, I have to remind myself that I don't monopolize God's truth, and it puts me in, into a, a, a bit of a more humble perspective as I engage these complex conversations. That's great. For everybody listening, let me just holler out a couple of the other Ten Commandments so you can kind of see where Eugene is sort of like casting the line into the water. It's like, thou shalt not go to bed with political parties. Thou shalt not be a jerk. Of course, the title. Um, thou shalt listen and build bridges. Um, thou shalt live out your convictions. Um, thou shalt pray, vote, and raise your voice. It's all really, really good. And, and I really appreciate your point that this is just, this is good civic engagement, no matter sort of where you fall on the spectrum. Um, and I think we need this leadership right now. I actually think we're starving for it. I, I don't ever have this conversation ever with any kind of leader or ordinary citizen or concerned voter ever, where they just think, this feels good. This feels like everything's going well right now. I like this. I I like how things look in the public square right now. I like the way that we are dialoguing. I think I think we are all feeling these tremors and we're kind of mm-hmm. scanning around looking for really strong leadership here for a different way, for a better way. And I think you're giving us this. it the best to be able to talk to someone about stuff that's going on inside your brain and heart to someone who really understands the stuff of heart. Uh, If you're like me, a professional who can guide me to the right place in dealing with my stuff is sometimes the ticket to getting unstuck. I love working with this partner because in them, I've discovered an affordable way to get professional help if you need it. And it's called BetterHelp Counseling. They connect you to 
a licensed therapist or counselor online, of course, entirely confidential, for any number of needs that you might be experiencing, depression, anxiety, um, relationships, anger, and they have financial aid available for those who qualify. So don't let costs get in the way of, of getting the help that you need. BetterHelp has a really good offer for our listeners here at the podcast. They're giving 10% off the first month with the code for the love. So all you have to do is go to betterhelp.com slash for the love, and then use the code for the love to get the help that you're looking for today. Okay, guys, back to our show. I want to ask you this. We all grew up. I think most of us did. I I shouldn't speak for everybody. I know I did. Grew up with this idea that patriotism is a really important thing to have. That's a very noble value of an American. Um, But it seems like over the last few years, in some arenas for sure, that we've seen patriotism drift toward something different, something that takes on a form of like isolationism and xenophobia. And it kind of says you, whoever you is, you can pick a group. You do not belong here. Like this has been kind of part and parcel with this approach to, to the public square. So I would like for you to talk about what you see as the key difference between patriotism and nationalism. What are we dealing with here? How are these different or how should they be different? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's a conversation that people need to be having regularly uh, because, as you noted, that uh, just almost in a seductive way, I think in the last couple of decades, and especially in the last couple of years, we've seen patriotism drift into nationalism. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with patriotism. Um, I think for myself, just a little bit of my story, I immigrated to this country when I was six years old. I'm the youngest of three sons. My parents were both born in North Korea. Uh, They were freed because of the intervention of the U.S. government. And so uh, when I hear my parents talk about their love for this country, it's pretty compelling. It always gets me emotional. Uh, And I'm patriotic as well. I owe a lot to this country. But I also know that Like any country, there is no perfect country. And I think what concerns me in the shift from patriotism to nationalism is that we're not so much saying, hey, there's so much for us to be proud of, but we're utilizing fear-mongering, and I would say um, not honest in our truth-telling about why we should be afraid of others, that people are taking our jobs, people are taking our benefits, people are taking our opportunities, And that's just not reality. That's just not true. We're taking a very small microcosm and then blowing that up to be the majority in reality. I'll I'll give you another example. During the whole Wall the economic Wall Street crash um, of the past decade or so ago, you know, we all know that bankers and banking institutions, um, they lied, they concealed. And yet, it's amazing to me that we don't have a broad stroke accusation or stereotype about all bankers. Um, But when it comes to, let's just say, those who might abuse the food stamp system, and truth telling is, yes, there is a small percentage of people that have abused that system. But to make that very small percentage, the wider majority is simply not true. Uh, And we can go on and on about other aspects of it as well. So I think when we venture into nationalism, and it's not just America first, but America only, uh, that's not uh, who we are as a nation. That's not why my parents and I, my family and I um, immigrated to this country, fell in love with this country. Uh, We still love this country. Uh, And so I I would, again, accentuate how important it is that when we're speaking about 
cultural Christianity. Uh, the danger of cultural Christianity is when we basically have our agenda and we pepper Jesus on top of it. And the danger of it is that it doesn't produce disciples of Christ. We're producing cultural Christians that are more enamored of building up, propping up the kingdom of America. Um, Dr. Bernice King, uh, the daughter, the youngest daughter of Martin Luther King Jr., you know, she speaks so eloquently and prophetically about the kingdom of America that uh, we've been seduced by. That's the difference, I think, between patriotism and nationalism. Mm, that's a great description. And it's it's sometimes can be difficult to discern. The line right there can get it it gets hazy. Um, and I I appreciate that that differentiation because I when criticism that I hear a lot is you know well how how do you hate America and I'm like no 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 that's not it at all that's I put these in different camps being um, proud to be an American or grateful for the for this country is not the same thing as um, elevating our country to the detriment of every other one. I appreciate you saying that. I've seen you ask other Christians this particular question. I've seen you ask, have you ever had conversations with people who have voted differently than you? Um, why, why is that important to ask? Why are you doing that? Well, I think if we're honest, and I know that if uh, that I, this is part of my confession as well, is that I think whether we know it or not, but slowly but surely, we end up gathering ourselves with people that look like us, think like us, feel like us, worship like us, and certainly even vote like us. And I think when Jesus says to love your neighbor, obviously as Christians, we know this to be an incredibly important part of our identity as followers of Jesus. But I think we just have to pause for a moment and just say, is it possible that for us, loving our neighbors means that we're loving those that just look like us and think like us and feel like us and worship like us and, and vote like us, that that's become the latter portion, voting like us. It's become like another litmus test about who gets to be with us and who we get to hang out with. And so as a result, we're developing these echo chambers that I know that you and your uh, listeners are familiar with that are affirming everything that we believe in. And as a result, we take very complex conversations, painful conversations, nuanced conversations, and we're having conversations about these things and we don't know people that have very different views about right. these things, whether they're conversations about refugees, immigration, DACA, young adults, LGBT, LGBT plus issues, militarism, police enforcement, Black Lives Matter. Like these are all really important conversations, but we actually don't know anyone from uh, another perspective from that side. Uh, there's uh, this... Um, initiative called Make America Dinner Again. Uh, I write about it in the book, and it was started by two Asian Americans in uh, the Bay Area, and they were distraught after the last election. And as they were kind of reflecting upon what just transpired in the elections, they realized, and this is, I think, self-awareness and maturity, they realized they didn't know a single person that would have voted differently than they did. And so as a result, uh, they decided to host a dinner, shared their story, and said, hey, uh, we don't want this to be a place of shouting or, or finger-pointing or accusation. We just want to have a meal together and speak about these very things. And as a result, they did that. And this initiative called Make America Dinner Again, MADA, uh, it's become a global-wide movement. I, I went to one here in Seattle as well. Uh, it might not change our views, uh, mm. but I think it has the possibility of making us more human, hmm. uh, more civil, more empathetic. Um, I think uh, we're so enamored of just shouting and screaming our views and convictions. I think we also need to take some time to learn to listen as well. I want to talk a little bit more about that um, because, as mentioned, politics are nuanced because people are nuanced and our experiences are so varied. And so here's my question to you, and this is a really complicated, I don't know how you're going to answer this. I don't know how I would answer this. Um, how do we, how do we manage to prop open the conversation long enough to keep to your earlier point, the dinner table open long enough to, to pull up seats around the table as listeners who are capable of conversation in maturity, who are capable of listening? Um, 
what do we do inside of those spaces with the very real reality that some of the things that we disagree on, some of the viewpoints that we see differently are to the harm of people. At the end of a particular policy or um, ideology is a person who is going to be harmed or kept out or uh, maligned or um, dehumanized in some way. And so thus what we have in the middle of the table is for what I, I see, and this is not in every case, some of, a lot of our policy differences are fiscal. You know, we just see, we, we think about governing the world differently, but some of them at the core of it is injustice. And sure. it is, uh, a, it's a humanity issue. So where I feel the rub is how do we both keep dialogue open, but keep justice at the forefront where it matters? Does this make sense? It does. It does make sense. And you're right. It, it is a, a hard question, but I think it's also a simple question. And let me explain. Okay. I, I almost think that you answered the question. I think we need to be able to call a spade a spade. Mm. We ought to be able to identify something that is unjust, that harms other people and call it for what it is. Um, I think that's really important in our world today where things become a bit more nebulous and amorphous. It's not just merely interpretation. When real human beings created in the image of God is being har- are being harmed, then I think we have to at least identify it and call it and grieve for that injustice. You know, I, I know you've spoken about this at, at length, and I've heard you speak about this, that for us as Christians, that we should have a pro-life ethic from womb to tomb. And there's a level of consistency that we uh, should strive to embody in our lives. Now, having said that, I think we can still uh, call injustice for what it is. And then I think there's still opportunities within that to pursue and to contend, uh, to shape policies, to shape specifics of those policies, even though it might feel like, man, this is so hard and challenging. You know, your whole point about what does it mean to to listen and to engage? Well, uh, politics, I think, Uh, Even though it can get messy, it it involves relationships. And so we have to keep building relationships with people. And it's not a one-time decision. It's ongoing. Governance never ends. And so when we shut the door, we demonize someone else and say, I'll never speak with you. Well, the reality is there's more governance and more policies that will be shaped, and it changes year to year, administration to administration. And so I would be very careful, and that's what I've learned, is that I have to be careful not to bash someone to the point that I'm no longer ever willing to have a conversation with that person again. Uh, but I think you know the art of listening, which I've alluded to earlier in the conversation, really uh, is so important. I- I'll just share a story about a policy that I've uh, had a change in, a change of heart with. Uh, here in Seattle, you know, we have uh, uh, this, our minimum wage is $15 an hour. And depending on where you live in the country, that might seem like a, a lot. Uh, but as a child of parents who ran small businesses, when this thing came out, I, I thought this was crazy, that this would destroy small businesses. And I was very against minimum wage increase to $15. Hmm. Uh, And actually really strongly against it. I was surprised how visceral my reaction was because I thought of my parents and and how they would struggle with that. Sure. Uh, But as I spent more time intentionally building relationships with people that are living uh, paycheck to paycheck, week to week, at best month to month, and seeing what they go through in Seattle, a city that's very expensive to live, I realized that uh, to be for one at the detriment of thousands and thousands of people that um, I would say are people struggling with issues of poverty, it really changed my heart and perspective. And I realized that this has got to be something that has to be a nationwide policy if we care as Christians about the poor among us as well. Uh, another story is just every year I, I, I go to Nebraska. Uh, it's kind of a crazy story, but I go to Nebraska every year for about two weeks. And I go there to fish, uh, rest, to read and pray. 
but what's been a surprise in this trips to Nebraska is that I've met Nebraskans you know, in a small town of two, 300 people. And I've gotten to know people, their stories, I've had meals with them, and I've had conversations that I would never, ever have here in Seattle, Washington. Sure. And I realized that um, a lot of what they say, if I didn't know where they lived or the color of their skin or whatever it might be, it sounds eerily familiar uh, with people of color uh, in urban settings that feel like they're forgotten in our in our culture and society. And so I'm not suggesting that this solves all the ailments of our world, but I, I, I do think that there are spaces and places where we can build bridges and say, how can we work together? Um, and that's good governance and good mm. politics. Mm. That's a great example. This is a big year for me, 2020. I have a lot of important work to do. I have a lot of people to love. And so I'm prioritizing my health and self-care. And one of my greatest tools is Noom. It's an app called Noom. So it's N-O-O-M, by the way. Noom, it's just different. It, it helps you look at your habits so that you can begin to develop like a really strong, healthy relationship with food and wellness. I like it because they teach you the psychology behind your personal decisions, like specifically what you do and but why you do it. And then they kind of help you keep track of your healthy habits um, and what's making you feel good, what's bringing you energy, um, what workouts are you like enjoying? And so they ask you to commit just 10 minutes a day to it. I promise you, you're worth 10 minutes a day. One of the things that I've enjoyed the most about Noom is that it really has interrupted a handful of loops that I've been in for like quite a while. I have medicated quite a bit with food and drinks. Just interrupting that trajectory is, has been not just good for my, of course, my body and my health, but for my mind. And I'm grateful for it. To sign up for your trial, you can go to noom.com slash for the love. It's n-o-o-m.com slash for the love. And you can start your trial today. You're worth this and you deserve this. So noom.com for the love. All right, everybody back to the show. So, you know, let's just let's just put it right on the nose. What do you say to the person who believes Christians should only and always vote one party and and they believe it strongly? Like it's shocking to them that there could be another another path. Well, I would gently and pastorally say that that's a dangerous, idolatrous, false, binary perspective. Uh, no one party monopolizes the kingdom of God. Um, I don't know how more clearly I can say that because parties also change as well. That's true. P positions of politicians change as well. We know this because history has shown how much parties have changed, how views of politicians have changed. You know, growing up, uh, I became a Christian at the age of 18. And when it came to politics, I was told basically two things about politics. Don't talk about it and vote Republican. Right, same. Uh, those are the two things that I was told. Uh, I have a friend who pastors a church in the South, and his story is comical because he heard the exact same things, but he was told that good Christians, uh, his identity was around three things. You're Southern, uh, you're Christian, and you're Republican. Um, and almost kind of in that order. And um, so obviously, I think there is some danger to that thought. Now, simultaneously in our world today, living in Seattle, often kind of known for its progressive bent, uh, eerily, I hear the opposite thing. Uh, if you're a Christian, right. you have to vote Democrat. And there's just no room, no space for Christians who struggle with their conscience that might vote a different direction. So my, my whole thing is this. Um, yes, no one party monopolizes the kingdom of God, but I think our two-party system, it's sick. Uh, it's it's, it's, it's ailed in some way. I couldn't agree and more. And we, we actually need our Republican Party to get healthier uh, 
and we need our Democrats to get healthier as well. I almost want, if I became emperor of the United States, yes. what I would do is for one month, I would order the two, two respective parties to say nothing bad about the other party and just spend the month doing a lot of self-reflection hmm. of their own parties and where they stand and where they need to grow and become more honest and more genuine and more mindful of their convictions and such. Mm. I, I just couldn't agree more. I have a list a mile long of wishes and dreams and hopes for the political system we have um, and ways in which it is corrupt from top to bottom and um, broken and toxic everywhere from one edge of the left to the far edge of the right. And um, and I think it's it's an honest assessment to say that it is it's it's an honest place to sit inside of our political system and say, this part is broken. This is unhealthy. The way in which we operate um, has created some real unhealth in our country. Um, what about the opposite? Like, so for a ton of us, we're super dialed into politics. I mean, we can barely get away from it. We've got notifications on our phones and we're following the, um, the accounts and the news all the time. We're tethered. Um, but there is an opposite um, possibility where some people who are Christians step away entirely and say things, you know, we're, we're in the world, we're not of the world. Um, so what, what would you say to the Christian specifically, but also maybe just the citizen? I, I think mm. that it could apply, um, who says politics just don't matter. They don't matter. And therefore, I'm just going to turn my back on them. Yeah. And sadly, you know, I, I meet both Christians and just citizens who have that posture. They're exhausted. Uh, some of them have grown cynical. Yeah. Some of them have grown incredibly weary. And I get that. You know, we, we live in a culture right now where the inundation of all things news and notifications and cable news and our tablets and technology, it can be overbearing. And, no and I would just say just say one thing that I think we have to, no matter where you kind of land on the spectrum of engagement, I think we have to learn how to engage in self-care, to pause and breathe and uh, learn what it means to um, to process things. Uh, but to your question about, you know, those who think that politics doesn't matter, uh, this grieves me tremendously, hmm. you know, particularly when they say that we should only focus on spiritual things, right? Um, as if politics isn't part of kind of the, uh, the larger uh, arena by which God can orchestrate things for his glory and honor. And, and so this is what I would say, politics matter, because politics inform policies that impact real human people created in the image of God. Yeah, Every it. single human being created in the image of God. And if we dabble in politics, we'll know that there's so much advocacy or lobbying that goes on. This is the reason why companies hire lobbyists and spend millions upon millions of dollars. And so in the whole political process, it's not a surprise that those who are vulnerable, those who might be poor, those who might be hungry, those who might be forgotten or marginalized are often ignored in our political process and system. It's another reason why I think Christians, and while Christians have made lots of mistakes over the years, there's also stories of how Christians, informed by their faith, were part of the abolition movement, who were totally. fighting or the uh, eradication and abolition of slavery, who were part of the suffrage movement. So I'm inspired by those stories, people who said, my faith in Christ compels me to engage and to advocate and to contend and fight for my neighbors who are often forgotten or overseen in the system. That's great. That's just so perfectly succinct. So at the end of the day, tell it to us just straight how do you believe the Christian voter or just a citizen should navigate the 2020 U.S. presidential election? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, it's a you hot have to take coming some, in. You have to cue some dramatic music yes. in the background. Yeah. Um, you know, here's what I'll say. Um, 
I want to first kind of take a little bit of a step back and then I'll answer your question. Okay. You know, I, I, um, I, I'm i really concerned because um, relationships, friendships, communities are being broken as a result of political views. That's real. Uh, people and churches are splitting over yeah. these things and it just grieves me tremendously. Mm. Uh, I don't want to diminish the pain that people have, the feelings of being so overwhelmed and distraught by uh, political views and policies about uh, both sides. Yeah. Uh, what I will say is this. Uh, I want to remind people of the Eucharist table when we gather together as the church. Uh, the Eucharist table, communion table, is just the most scandalous, most compelling image that I can think of. That we don't have a line for the left, a line for the right, and then a gluten-free line for our centrists and independents. Uh, that the table of Jesus Christ welcomes all. Um, and it's just something that we have to be reminded of, uh, that in the middle of a crazy election cycle, and what I think will continue to be crazy for elections to come, uh, that that kind of anchors us a little bit. Now, to your question, um, you know, I've made a covenant uh, just to myself as a, as a pastor never to tell people how or who they should vote for. Yes. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick to that. But mm. what I do want to tell people is a couple things. One is that uh, the night before the elections and the morning of the elections, every election, I just take part of my process is to pray. Mm. But I also read the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Yeah, it just great. anchors me. It anchors me about who I am. Hmm. who I belong to and who I serve. And I acknowledge that as a broken person, I'm a resurrection person living in a broken Friday world. Uh, that just because of the election, uh, not everything is going to be fixed. That's right. And so I want to be, be mindful of the two great commandments to love God and love people. Now, having said that, um, I do think that while I can't tell people who they should vote for, I do tell people, hey, we shouldn't vote for someone that exhibits a lack of integrity, is deceitful, is demonizing, is bullying, and the list goes on and on. Right, sure. Uh, and people can interpret that how they want to, but I think it's important for us to, to, to again, remind ourselves, uh, let's be informed, vote our convictions, but always remember, let's not allow our politics to shape our theology. Let's allow our theology, our Christology, our convictions in the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ, let that be that which informs our views. Last thing that I'll just say is um, I know that I'm going to get pushback you know, from both sides on this, uh, but I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of uh, the sovereignty of God. I'm not suggesting that the brokenness of our world is God's will. That's mm. not what I'm saying. Right. But I do believe that God's still in control. Um, and so we have to breathe a little bit and just remind ourselves that as we engage the political process, that we're not canceling out people and just eliminating relationships with people that disagree with us, uh, that as we contend for our convictions, that we still believe that God's in control. That's great. I love that. Another thing that serves me when... Um, uh, the rhetoric feels chaotic and polarized and um, everything at such a high level and a high volume is to go kind of low and near. Like, where do I live? Um, who is my neighbor? Like, literally. Um, what is happening right here in real life with people in front of me? Because there's one version of our culture sort of online and in the news. And then I experience a different version almost entirely in my real life. Um, these two things do not match in volume. They do not match in constant intensity, um, in um, cancel culture. There's just feels like real life has a lot more room for, for humanity. So I love taking a little advice from Mr. Rogers. You know, there's that very famous quote of his that when something disaster would happen, when something is his parents couldn't explain, when something felt really sad or scary or broken, you know, his mother would always tell him, look for the helpers. 
right? You can always find people who are helping and there's just such good news inside of that. And there's Mm -hmm. such dignity inside of it. And there's um, a sense of really hope and even optimism, if we could be like that naive to say the word optimism this year. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wonder, because you've been a pastor for years, you stepped away last year. Was it last year that you stepped down? I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit. Um, But you've been a pastor for a really long time. And this feels like pastoral advice to me. So how would you pastor it here? Just as normal people, I mean, most of us are not pundits. We are not uh, elected officials. Uh, we don't, uh, most of us are just kind of like in the realm of ordinary citizenry. Citizenry. So how do we, how do we help? How do we stay grounded? How do we, how do we make a difference where we live in our neighborhoods? And why does that also matter? Like why does, that's also a bit of an antidote um, to some of the just fury and fever that mm. has seemingly infected our country. Yeah. I love this question. I love how you articulated the question. I think in some ways there's a few things that you shared that answers the question, uh, that we can be just obsessed about the 35,000, 40,000 foot level. We're just bantering away at our screens on blogs, on social media, and yet if it doesn't impact the way that we live our lives, if it doesn't compel us to cross the street, to love our neighbors, to get to know our neighbors. And you know, this whole thing about loving your neighbors, I think is such an abstract thing if you don't even know your neighbors. And I think the reality is that many of us are living in bubbles where we don't know our neighbors, we don't know the issues that are in front of us, in our neighborhoods, in our cities and such, that when we say we care about justice and injustice, you know, we don't necessarily engage in issues that are, again, are impacting our very cities. So that's the first thing that I would say is that we have to just make that commitment. And if we reduce our civic engagement to a vote every two to four years, I'll I'll just say it bluntly, even if it hurts, If we reduce our civic engagement to one vote every two to four years, we're actually part of the problem in this country. That's fair. And so I I hope that people would take that to heart. And again, it doesn't mean that we can do everything, but we can all do something. It's our PTA. It's advocating for issues for those who have accessed uh, because disability issues, it's homelessness, it's, it's, it's hunger issues in our very cities. It's amazing that we live in a country, uh, amazing that we live in a country where 40 million people uh, experience hunger in our yeah. own country. Right. Uh, and that's happening in our, in our neighborhoods. Uh, we can still talk about issues of, uh, well, I mean, the list goes on and on, but you know, The quote that you mentioned, I love that quote as well from Fred Rogers. Um, I've also feel like sometimes people misuse it or maybe misquote it because I I get it. We have to look for the helpers because that will give us encouragement and a sense of optimism. And at some point, um, my encouragement to people is stop looking Mm. for the helpers, but be the helpers. I mean, we've got to be the people that are out and about. Uh, engaging in these things. And and here's the thing that I hope people would also walk away encouraged by is that it might not hit the news. It might not make it on cable news or, but I just come across so many people that are doing this very thing. Uh, It inspires me so much. Me too. Um, Citizens, followers of Jesus, people that may have left the church, people that just really care about their fellow human being. And so we hear a lot of this fear-mongering and feverish news. And this is not to diminish the reality of some difficult things, difficult realities going on. But let's also be mindful that there are so many people um, doing beautiful things. That's right. uh, Out of their desire to love God and love people. That's so right. It's so true. Have you heard that I have my very own book club? It's true. And you are invited. Every month at the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, we dive into a book I'm pretty sure you're going to love. 
And we read all kinds of stuff, you guys. Fiction, nonfiction, memoir, short stories, all written by super fascinating people from all walks of life. So once a month, I send a book and other fun treats in your book box just for you. Um, plus you get a ton of exclusive perks for being a member. First of all, you have access to our private Facebook group, which is hopping. You get a Facebook live chat session every month that I lead in our group where I just kind of talk through the book thus far. Uh, you'll get a packet of materials that take your reading even further, like weekly summaries, discussion questions. We've got an awesome Spotify list that that month's author puts together for the Gen Hatmaker Book Club. It's really, really cool. There's an exclusive members-only podcast with me and the book's author um, every single month, and it is the coolest. There's so much else that comes in the book club. Recipes, life tips, meetups. I mean, it's just, it's packed. So if that sounds like something you want in on, which you do, sign up now at jenhatmakerbookclub.com and join this awesome sisterhood. So go to jenhatmakerbookclub.com and please, for the love, join us today. Okay, guys, back to our show. Before we wrap it up here, I've got a couple of like quick wrap up questions for you, but I would just love to hear you talk for a minute about kind of what you're doing right now, because you've made a pretty, pretty tectonic shift, um, in your work and how you are living out kind of your ministry. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about, um, where you've come from and then kind of stepping away from the church last year and what you're doing now? Yeah. Um, so my wife and I planted a church called Quest Church about 18 years ago. Uh, it's a very special church. We, we love the church. Uh, but after 18 years, we felt like it was time to mm-hmm. step aside, let younger leadership kind of emerge into the church. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it sounds really morbid and ominous. And I know that we're not old by any means, but both of us, she turned 50 last year. I'm turning yeah. 50 this year. Yeah. And we just felt like, hey, in our next 18 years, um, God, how, how might you be calling us uh, to utilize our time and our our, uh, our gifts you know, for you? And as a result, uh, two things came to mind. One is that I wanted to encourage um, pastors and missionaries and nonprofit leaders in this country and around the world. And so even though I don't pastor a local church, I still feel like I'm pastoring. Mm. Um, this past year, uh, this is not what I imagined, but, uh, I've made a, an agreement for one year to help out at Willow Creek church, okay. um, as they've gone through their difficult times. So I'm, yeah. I'm there once a month helping out, mm. speaking on, on the weekends, but it's really about just encouraging and trying to uh, support leaders around the mm. world. But the second thing really is just wanting to double down on, um, my convictions about advocating and contending, preaching. Uh, encouraging issues around poverty um, mm, yeah. uh, to come alongside those who experience this reality, whether it's domestically or internationally. Uh, right now, I do that through one day's wages. Right. Um, I know that you're, you're familiar with it, but for those that might not be, it's just a small grassroots movement where we're trying to uh, inspire people to give up a day's of their wages at least once a year. Mm. And we use all of those resources to help fund collaborative partnerships around the world. Uh, but it's also spending a lot of time in D.C. Um, it's not a lot of time, but I've made a few trips out to D.C. Mm. speaking about the things that we spoke about today, about yeah. advocating for policies that impact real human people to try to dignify and humanize mm. um, uh, people created in God's image that are struggling and suffering. Mm, that's great. That's such good work. I'm really proud of you. Um Okay. Well, here's the wrap up questions. We've, we're asking everybody in this series, these kind of quick, just top of your head questions. Here's the first one. Probably a lot of answers. So you could just pick one. Yep. Who's, who's one of the biggest mentors in the faith for you? Uh, passed away or still alive? Whatever. Oh gosh. I, I, Ooh, I can't yeah. do one, but let, yeah. let me give you 
Let me give you a couple. Okay. Obviously, MLK is one, but Brian Stevenson, Same. in today's context, I wish he'd run for president. Oh, uh, I would so special. be all behind him. But I want to mention one more because I think it's so important. And I mentioned this in the book, but I have been so inspired by uh, a 17 year old Korean hmm. uh, woman who passed away at the age of 17 in the early 1900s. Her name is Yu Kwan Sun. Uh, and I know that your listeners and hardly anybody in this country will know who she is, but she was a follower of Jesus who became an activist uh, against uh, Japanese oppression and occupation wow. during that time. Yeah. And this movement began because of a 16-year-old girl who had the, the audacity and the courage to step up. And sadly, she was taken to prison and she she died there. But I've been just really just uh, moved learning more about her story. And she happens to be a, a big hero in faith. Mm. Thanks for sharing her name and her story and bringing that forward. I can't wait to read more. Um, okay, here's the next one. Yep. If you if you had one and, and you had a moment to ask God something, do you have a do you have a question? Whew. I have a selfish question. Okay, Why couldn't it. I have been taller in order to <laughs> fulfill and pursue my NBA hoop dreams? And it's so actually unfair. not. Hey, I've it's seen you. Not, uh, it's actually a serious question. I think I would really ask. Like you're, I'm a you're big, bitter. I'm a big uh, basketball hoop lover. I'm an addict to basketball. I just wish I could be taller. Yeah. So that's aggravating God. Like, why didn't he give us just the desires of our hearts? That's right. I mean, it's so real. Um, here's the last one. We actually ask every single guest in every single series, this question to kind of wrap up the interview. Uh, it's Barbara Brown Taylor question who I love and you can answer it however you want. Big, small, important, not important. Um, what is saving your life right now? You know, uh, uh, I, two things come to mind almost instantaneously. You know, I've been married to my wife now for 23 years. Yeah. Um, this gives us great joy. Um, I think having three kids, two in college and one that's about to leave yeah. and will be empty nesting. Wow. Uh, so family has meant so much to us, uh, and it's given us so much life and joy, even in the midst of hard conversations and challenges. And then the other thing that I would say is I'm an introvert um, mm -hmm. and I need, I desperately need the outdoors to really uh, replenish me. And I've learned uh, out of just, I think, self-awareness that I'm healthy when I'm outdoors a bit That's more. Great. And so I love hiking. I love fishing. Fishing mm -hmm. is one of my great passions. And so those two things, my family and fishing, That's great. Uh, have been really great saving graces for me. That's great. Um, we're, you know, in real similar place to you. We've got two in college, we've got a senior, um, and then we've got two behind him. So it just, it went really fast, didn't it? I just oh, look, at, look at them and go, what just happened? I mean, too, just too fast. blink too fast, too fast. It's so emotional and so wonderful. And I'm with you in every, um, front of that. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on today, Eugene. I mean it. I, um, these are challenging and difficult questions. These are important, but sometimes harrowing conversations. And you are just a very trustworthy leader through them. And I say that with utter sincerity. And I really appreciate the way you approach um, this arena with such humility and with such a tender spirit, always with like Jesus as the North Star. That's evident. It's so clear. It's so obvious. And so just thank you for being the real deal and for being who you are in public and private, all the same. Um, and for this steady sort of faithful consistency that you have had all these years, it matters and it means a lot to me. And so thank you just for being who you are, but definitely for coming on the show today. Well, Jen, thank you. Those words, uh, are really encouraging. They mean a lot. And, um, I'm really grateful to be able to spend some time with you and, uh, grateful that we get to uh, seek to love God and love people uh, in the same season of life together as well. Me too. Lucky us. Thank you for coming on today. All right. Thank you. What a great guy, you guys. What a great pastor. What a great leader. Just he has borne a faithful witness for a really long time. And I'm so happy that he said yes to this series. 
Um, so my hypothesis is that when talking about politics um, from the position of being a Christian, that at some point that conversation is going to make you prickle, <laughs> like wherever it is. And that to me probably means it's a good conversation. Um, that there are places where I think probably every one of us can do some deep work on, where we have overly attached to a political ideology, or we have looked the other way when we should have stood up even inside of our camp um, and said no, or said yes, whatever the thing is. Um, so I, because I, I, I noticed the places where it rubs on me a little bit, I'm like, oh, yep, I've got, I can see some spots there where I still have work to do. So if you were challenged at all by that conversation, I say, yay. I say, good, that means you're listening and you're paying attention. And I think that's just kind of the hard work um, of the Christian citizen right now in this world gone mad, right? Um, more to come in this series, more leadership, more ministry, more challenging conversations. Like I, I'm just really, my brain has been buzzing um, putting this um, entire series together. And I'm glad you keep listening. Uh, go back and listen to the ones you've missed. Um, if you haven't caught them all, they've, every one of them has been thought provoking and challenging. So thank you for being a great, great listening community. We are so grateful for you. If you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe, um, subscribe to the podcast and, um, get it right delivered to your phone every single week. You don't have to do any work for it. Um, and then also we thank you so much for all the times that you rate and review our podcast. It's just great for a show. It just kind of signals to the marketplace. This is working and people are interested in this kind of content and keep it going. So thank you for doing that. We're grateful. Okay. Everybody on behalf of our producer, Laura and her amazing staff. And then Amanda and I, who put this together week in and week out. Um, thanks for being here and we will see you next week. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.